Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Melanie Wellham and Dr Paul DeBank from the University's Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology talk about stem cell research and regenerative medicine. Welcome then, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this General University Lecture Programme and a particular welcome from the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology as it celebrates its centenary year. We have been very fortunate and persuaded two of our colleagues to stand up and give this public lecture. And so I'm very grateful to Melanie and to Paul for agreeing to that. The format is going to be that Melanie is going to speak for about 15 to 20 minutes and then take questions. And then following on from that, Paul will speak for about 15 to 20 minutes and then take questions. So there will be the opportunity for you to interact with both the speakers and, and to ask those exciting questions about embryonic stem cells and about regenerative medicine. All those things that you want to know about the creation of extra organs. I hope you're looking forward to it. Please welcome Melanie Wellen. Okay, thank you, Ian, for that, uh, for that very kind introduction. And what we hope to do this afternoon is to actually um, deliver an informative lecture, and hopefully we'll have some... Um, you'll find it entertaining at points as well. Um, and we do want this to be interactive, so I would encourage you, um, as we're going through, to think up those questions. Uh, Paul and I will be very happy to answer anything that you want to ask us. No, I'm going to regret saying that now. Okay. <laughs> So this is what we're going to talk about. Ian's already told you that uh, we're going to kind of uh, do this as a double act. Um, I'm going to start off because I think it's probably important that we all have some general level of understanding of what we mean by the term regenerative medicine because it actually means many different things to actually many different people. And then I'm going to focus on discussing the science and ethics relating to stem cells because they are actually going to play a central role in regenerative medicine in the future. Then I will answer my questions, and Paul will hand over to talk more about the applications of stem cells and how they're actually being used and will be used in the future to try and recreate three-dimensional functional organs for replacement therapies. Okay, so regenerative medicine. Now, I, I thought about this when I was preparing the talk, and we really need to get something that everyone can actually relate to in terms of the, the, the theme of regenerative medicine. Now, I wonder if I could actually get a show of hands from the, from the assembled group here as to how many people are supportive of organ transplantation and uh, organ, organ donation. Okay, so that's, that's a pretty good percentage. How many of you are actually active organ donors in that you've got your card or you've actually signed up to actually donate? Okay, a smaller number. Therein lies the problem. Okay, today there are about 8,000 people in the UK waiting for a transplant of an organ of some description. And that number is actually rising annually by about 8%. And I've also read that approximately one person each day dies waiting whilst they're on the waiting list for an organ. So whilst organ and cell donation is a very effective form of regenerative medicine because it enables the recipient to receive a healthy organ to replace one which is damaged, 
through disease or injury, it's actually very limited because we don't have enough donors. Okay? And that's always going to be the case because the reality is that a patient, in order to receive a donation, someone has to donate an organ and we know the circumstances under which people donate organs when they meet an untimely end. So what we hope regenerative medicine will actually do is to develop new ways that we can treat people to replace damaged organs and tissues without having to rely on people donating cells and organs. So we want to develop new ways to repair tissues. Uh, And that's really going to be our central uh, point that we're going to emphasise this afternoon. There's multiple ways that we can actually think about doing this. Okay, we could think about enhancing the body's own powers to regenerate, because we do have power to regenerate. We wouldn't, none of us, be sitting here today if we didn't. Okay? So that's one aspect that we can think about. Other aspects, which are going to be more the focus of what we're going to talk about, are using cells in replacement therapies. So developing cell-based therapies for repairing damaged or diseased tissue. And actually combining cells with biocompatible materials to actually start to recreate in a controlled laboratory setting three-dimensional structures that actually can replicate the functions of organs within our bodies and tissues within our bodies. And it's these two last points that we're really going to focus on um, in our presentation today. So to sort of put this in context to what it actually what is actually involved in the process of regenerative medicine, we have to have a source of cells which are going to be used either in the cell therapy or to generate new tissues or generate artificial organs. We have to manipulate these in the laboratory through a series of quite complicated procedures, which we're not really going to dwell on too much. And then when we have our engineered um, tissue replacement, that will then be reintroduced into the patient. What I hope to convince you of this afternoon is that stem cells are going to play a critical role in many aspects of this process of regenerative medicine. What are stem cells? We all need to understand what they are before we can actually understand how they might be useful. In kind of the cell biology terms, stem cells, when you look at them down a light microscope, such as this stem cell shown here, are pretty much at the boring end of the spectrum as far as cells go. They really don't look very interesting from the cell biology point of view. But actually, these cells are pretty remarkable. And they're pretty remarkable because when we give them signals which tell them to change from being a stem cell, we can encourage them to turn into many other cell types. And that process is a process called differentiation. That's the remarkable property that stem cells have. And it's because of that remarkable property that many people believe that stem cells hold sort of the magic key, really, to developing new regenerative medicine-based therapies. I'm just going to take you through a couple of examples to illustrate this point. Type 1 diabetes or juvenile diabetes is... um, a particular problem and arises because the body destroys its own um, cells in the pancreas known as the pancreatic beta cells. 
These are the cells that normally produce insulin and that regulate the levels of a sugar in our blood, glucose, which are really important for our general health and well-being. It's a source of energy for all of our cells. So patients who have type 1 diabetes can't regulate their levels of glucose. And they are on lifelong insulin therapy in order to try and regulate their blood sugar. But this process is not as efficient as it could be. And the disease actually has a number of um, sort of consequences in later life for those patients. So the possibility of actually turning stem cells into pancreatic beta cells to replace those cells that have been lost through disease in these patients would be tremendous because we could actually offer these patients a curative therapy because they'd be able to produce their own insulin rather than just the um, treatment that they have now with insulin, which is actually not a curative treatment. Similar arguments can be made with diseases and injuries that affect the central nervous system. Spinal cord injuries, it's very difficult to recover from. People make small steps towards progress, but it's actually, if you sustain a major trauma to the spinal cord, it's, it's very, it has very serious consequences. And as our population ages, so we see increasing incidence of neurodegenerative diseases, such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And these diseases are caused due to the loss of specific types of nerve cells in our central nervous system and in our brain. So again, if we could harness the properties of stem cells to generate the specific nerve cells which are lost or which could be useful to repair spinal cord following injury, then we could bring about improvements to the quality of many people's lives and we could actually develop curative treatments for these disorders. I could, I could go on and on, and I've just listed some other examples here. The main point is that many diseases, which are chronic disorders, arise through damage to cells and cell loss. And many of these diseases are potential targets for regenerative therapy, harnessing the properties and power of stem cells. That sounds great. Where are we going to get the stem cells from? There's kind of three potential sources, and I'm going to talk a little bit about adult stem cells and then about stem cells from the early embryo. But the umbilical cord is a very rich source of stem cells, um, and it's becoming quite popular now to actually bank stem cells from umbilical cord such that they could actually be deployed later in life should they actually be required. Okay, so we all depend on the activity of stem cells within our bodies to maintain a healthy balance of our tissues and organs. And the reason for that is because adult stem cells play a critical role in replacing cells that are worn out through natural wear and tear. Red blood cells, which we all have billions of, only live for about 120 days. So constantly, every day, we're making hundreds of thousands of those cells to replace those that have worn out. What's the source? What's the origin? It's stem cells within our bone marrows, the blood stem cell, which actually keeps generating progenitor cells which can lead to the differentiation to produce more red blood cells. So they play a really important role in replacing worn-out cells. And also, if we sustain injury to the skin or to the, to the gut or to other tissues, 
then certain tissues have a really powerful mechanism to actually repair damage. And that repair is also due to the action of stem cells in our tissues. That sounds great. They're actually already doing the job that people interested in regenerative medicine and regenerative therapies want them to do. They're already repairing tissues. Great. We can use adult stem cells. Well, there's a few problems. These cells are pretty rare. Blood stem cells in the bone marrow are only one in about 10,000 cells. Not only that, but they're actually really very hard to identify. And when you do identify them, we try and expand them in the laboratory, we're actually still not very good at doing that. So we might double them or quadruple them whilst keeping them as stem cells, but it's actually really quite a hard, difficult problem. Not only that, but we now understand that these adult stem cells, while they carry out these really important processes for each of us every single day, they can actually really only produce a limited number of cell types. So a a brain stem cell will only really produce other nerve cells. A blood stem cell will only produce other blood cells. So they don't really have sort of overwhelming um, properties to harness in regenerative medicine. Additionally, coming back to this problem with, with organ donation, there's still a limited number of people who are going to be prepared to donate tissue in order that adult stem cells can be harvested from them. So there are, there are problems. For this reason, scientists have really um, focused a lot of effort on studying embryonic stem cells. Embryonic stem cells are derived from early embryos. This is actually a mouse embryo that I've shown you here. This part of the embryo, which is called the inner cell mass, would normally, if it were allowed to develop, would be the part of this this structure that would actually form the mouse proper, the mouse embryo proper. What scientists showed 25 to 30 years ago was that actually you could take out these cells, and if you were clever and grew them in factors that they liked you could actually grow them for very long periods of time in the laboratory. And these cells were named embryonic stem cells, and they generate embryonic stem cell lines, which are very clever because they will continue to make copies of themselves almost without limit, as long as you're careful about how you culture them. So they're a really renewable, sustainable resource of stem cells because they have this huge capacity to copy themselves and increase um, dramatically in number. Not only that, but we now know that these embryonic stem cells, in contrast to adult stem cells, can actually form over 200 different types of cells. Okay, So almost there is an unlimited possibility here to harness these properties because... They can form so many different cell types. And the special term given to this is pluripotent. So I would argue that embryonic stem cells actually offer greater potential to regenerative medicine because they, in theory, can form any of these cell types that we might want to use for therapy. But that's not without its issues. And and Ian has already kind of mentioned this, There are clearly ethical concerns associated with the derivation and use of embryonic stem cells. Okay, so to derive 
human embryonic stem cells, as I described to you with the mouse, you actually need a supply of early embryos. And this procedure was perfected, so about 10 years ago, the first human embryonic stem cell lines were derived. The problem is that when you derive lines from an early embryo, you destroy that embryo. And hence, if your belief is that that embryo from the very first stage of fertilization holds the potential for life, what you're actually doing when you make embryonic stem cells is destroying that potential for life. And to certain people, that is ethically not acceptable. In the UK, the legislation is such that it's only embryos which are spare from in vitro fertilisation procedures which can be used under the appropriate informed consent. And in the UK, the current legislation, although this may change, is that after five years, if any of those embryos haven't been used to try and um, lead to a pregnancy those IVF embryos have to be destroyed, okay? My argument would be that surely it's better to use spare embryos to derive human ES cells, which could, after all, give us help improve human health because of their potential in regenerative medicine, rather than to lose those embryos anyway without any potential um, for improving human health. So that would be my argument, but again, that may be something we want to discuss a little bit later. Okay, just to sort of change the emphasis slightly, does anybody recognise this woolly individual here? It's Dolly, it's Dolly. Why do we all know this is not all know? Why do we know this is Dolly? Why is Dolly so famous? Okay, Dolly is very famous because she was the first live offspring that resulted from a technique called nuclear transfer. Okay, so Dolly was created a very simplified way by, in the, by the following methodology. So a nucleus was taken from an adult cell and put into a fertilised egg, which had already had its nucleus removed. That egg was then activated and implanted into a, a recipient you, um, Okay, and the experiment was whether any of these eggs which had had an adult nucleus implanted into them would actually give rise to a live offspring. Dolly was the uh, first positive result from that experiment <laughs> because she was the first live offspring that, that was born. Now, this was actually quite a remarkable thing because... This adult cell nucleus thinks it's an adult cell nucleus. And in order to be able to give rise to a viable offspring, it had to go under, undergo what we call, what scientists call reprogramming, to tell it that it was no longer an adult cell nucleus, but was now an embryonic cell nucleus. And there are marks within our nucleus which tells the DNA whether you're adult or embryonic or in between. So essentially, it would revert it from an adult to embryonic. Okay, now this, the reason I'm telling you this is because this work inspired a number of researchers around the globe, but particularly this individual here, Professor Shinya Yamanaka from Kyoto in Japan, to think, okay, if we can take an adult sheep cell, 
and reprogram it to think it's more of an embryonic sheep nucleus? Can we do the same thing with adult human cells and reprogram them to make stem cells? Okay. The reason he wanted to do this was because in Japan it's very difficult to work with human embryonic stem cells because of some of those ethical issues. If you could take adult cells from any patient who needed treatment, you could, could you reprogram their cells to stem cells and then change those stem cells into the types of cells that those patients needed for their treatment? I wouldn't be telling you this if it didn't actually work. And this is very new research. It's only been published in the last few months. In fact, it was published in November last year. So what this Japanese group did was to take adult skin cells from a 39-year-old Caucasian woman, and they put into these skin cells four factors, which were actually genes, but we don't need to worry about that for our purposes. They grew these cells for a period of time, and when they looked at them after about 30 days, they saw these colonies, which looked exactly like human embryonic stem cells would look if they were in culture. So it seemed that this experiment of reprogramming adult cells into stem cells looked like it might have worked. Subsequent analysis showed that these cells that they'd generated shared lots and lots of features with embryonic stem cells. And so they called these induced pluripotent cells. And this has really sort of taken the field by storm because the opportunities provided by these induced pluripotent stem cells are tremendous. Okay, it gives us the possibility to, to readily make patient-specific stem cells. It bypasses the need to use human embryos, so that makes them much more ethically acceptable. If they really have the properties that embryonic stem cells have and they can do everything that embryonic stem cells have, then these are going to really be much more acceptable to a great many people than embryonic stem cells. But this is very new. We are just at the beginning of what could be a very exciting journey. And Ian's getting up now, so I better <laughs> draw things to a close. So Paul will, will be taking over from this point and talking about how stem cells are being used to try and develop treatments in the clinic, but I will stop there and take questions. Thank you. So now the chance to generate a new organ and maybe to think about which movies you have in mind when extra heads are being created and <laughs> generated. So please welcome Paul DeBank. Okay, thanks Ian. Um, just to put that into perspective immediately, um, can we grow organs in the lab? Uh, in the media they say it's Frankenstein science, we'll take stem cells pop them in the lab and we'll, we'll grow organs. Well, the fact is we can't, as Melanie just touched upon. Um, the only way to do it is take a fertilised egg, pop it in a womb for nine months and out will come a baby full of organs and tissues. Um, <laughs> when we take uh, embryonic stem cells, this doesn't happen. If we put them in a dish and grow them, 
we'll get random differentiation um, and the formation of a mixed population of cell types um, in a 2D dish. The main problem is, in the womb, all the cells are in three dimensions. You've got three-dimensional signaling between cells, between the cells and the extracellular protein matrix that they grow within. You have signaling from chemicals at different times, at different concentrations, and you also have different physical forces acting upon the cells at different time points, and depending where, where within the developing tissue and fetus that they actually are. So there's a very, very complex uh, signaling cascades that go on in a developing organism, and we can't actually recreate that in the lab yet, or maybe never. So, as Melanie showed earlier, this is how we try and at least produce a relatively functional tissue or organ in the lab. Uh, there's five steps. The first step being isolating cells, from, ideally from the patient. Um, we'll never get enough cells just from a biopsy or a tissue sample, so we have to grow these up in a tissue culture flasks to expand the number to a, a number that we can then seed onto these three-dimensional scaffolds. Now, most of your tissues are bulky 3D tissues, um, unless you're talking about things like skin. So we need a, a 3D um, scaffold environment for a bulky tissue to form on. Um, to this, we add a complex mixture of different growth factors and chemicals to enable the cells to grow and maybe differentiate into the cell type that we want. Then we mature this in, uh, cell, in uh, culture conditions in a dish or in a flask. Um, to produce a mature functional tissue, hopefully, which we then implant back into the patient. So the first component that we need is the cell. Um, ideally, this will be from the patient themselves, um, whether it's an inducible pluripotent cell or a mesenchymal bone marrow cell um, or just a normal differentiated mature cell. Um, alternatively, if we can't get the cells from the patient, we'll have to get them from another donor, another human donor, or an animal donor. But of course, this brings along the risks of disease transmission and immune rejection. So ideally, we want a cell from the, from the patient whose tissue you're trying to replace. Um, so we then need to isolate these cells from the other massive cell types that we're bound to get in a biopsy or tissue sample. Um, and then we expand these in tissue culture flasks. Um, nice pile of flasks there with a nice pink culture medium. Uh, this contains all the nutrients that the cells need to grow. We put these into an incubator at 37 degrees body temperature with 5% carbon dioxide, which is, approximates to what you find in the body. Um, and then these cells will grow and expand in number, depending on the cell type. Uh, the important thing is this is in two dimensions in a flask. A lot of cells require the three-dimensional um, environment to maintain their function, um, especially things like liver cells. They require a particular 3D environment to maintain liver function. And if you take them out of this environment and put them in a 2D culture, they'll lose their function. So the environment that you culture the cells in is very important. Next, we need our scaffold to make this tissue that we're making three-dimensional. Um, these are usually made of uh, natural or synthetic polymers, Natural polymers include things like collagen that you find in the connective tissue in your ears, for example, um, things like silk protein even, and also the synthetic polymers that we make in the lab. Um, it's important that these have the right 3D shape for the tissue or organ we're trying to replace. Um, so for soft 
tissues, such as the cornea, for example. We can use these gel-like substances. For harder, denser tissues, we can use uh, things like these blocks of porous tissue that essentially, when you look at them, look like sugar lumps. Um, or for tubular tissues, such as blood vessels, um, bone, we can use these sort of um, tubular fibre-shaped scaffolds. Porosity of scaffolds is very important. We want the cells to be seeded on these scaffolds and grow into three-dimensional tissue. So they need to be porous so the cells can get into the scaffold and grow throughout the entire structure and not just around the edge. And the porosity is also important for the exchange of nutrients. Um, Nutrients need to get into the centre of the growing tissue and waste products need to get out so the cells don't die. Um, Degradability is also very important. The scaffold needs to biodegrade at the same rate as the tissue is forming. So eventually you form a tissue with no scaffold within it, a healthy um, scaffold-free tissue. And extremely important um, is the adhesion of cells. These must be attractive for cells to grow on. Um, If they're not adhesive to the cells, there's no point in having them. You need um, adhesive sequences on there for the cells to stick to and grow on. Um, And some of the best materials that we have aren't particularly cell adhesive, but we can chemically modify these to make them essentially stickier. And finally, um, we need, ideally, in the ideal scaffold, to have growth factors. Um, These will be released from the scaffold over time to help the cells grow and differentiate into the tissue um, that you want. And they may also help uh, later on when the tissue's been implanted to attract blood vessel formation uh, into the scaffold. Currently, there's a lot of interest in uh, everything nano. This shows some silk nanofibers that we made in my lab. Um, these replicate the matrix naturally found around cells. Um, and so the cells seem to be a lot happier on this type of matrix than on uh, matrices with, and scaffolds with larger pores. And just for comparison, that's a human hair. This little bar across the bottom is 50 microns, 50 millionths of a metre, whereas this one here is one micron. So you could get about 400 of these side by side on a human hair. And you've all probably seen um, a scaffold in the media in the past. And it's this little fella. Um, This is a porous collagen scaffold that's been seeded with uh, cartilage cells and then implanted under the mouse skin. Um, This is the sort of murky side of regenerative medicine, um, and it was just done to prove a point that you can grow an artificial um, tissue, albeit using a poor little mouse. So what's the current state of play? Since 1990, over $4.5 billion has been invested in regenerative medicine companies. And you'd think for this amount of money, we'd have lots of products out there on the market. Unfortunately... Because tissues are so complex, we've only got two different tissues that you can actually buy um, in a clinical um, scenario. And these are basically fairly simple tissues, uh, skin and cartilage. And I'm just going to talk about uh, one tissue product, and this is the MySkin product from a company called Celtran. This uses the patient's own mature skin cells, uh, but in the future could use stem cells. Um, to treat things like major burns and deep wounds that um, don't, aren't treated by, uh, by normal methods. This shows the uh, cross-section of the skin. It's, um, and forgive me, my head of department, this is a relatively simple tissue structure um, compared to other things like the liver and the brain and the heart. 
um, and consists of this uh, dermis layer that contains a lot of connective tissue, blood vessels, sweat glands, hair follicles and nerve endings. Um, the epidermis is really the, the business end and creates the barrier function of skin. And this wavy purple line um, is a layer of cells called keratinocytes. These are continually regenerating the surface of the skin. They grow, they migrate up towards the surface, and during this migration process, they die off and become this hard layer of skin that acts as a barrier. Now, to make my skin, um, surgeons will take this split-thickness skin graft, which is basically taking the top epidermal layer and part of the underlying uh, dermis. Um, This is taken to the lab, where... These two layers are teased apart enzymatically and the keratinocytes are scraped off. They're then cultured and expanded in the lab and they look like this. Um, Some of them are then frozen down in liquid nitrogen and are preserved for future treatments, whereas others are grown on these um, silicone sheets which have been uh, treated with a special plasma which makes them sticky for the cells. So the cells are grown on there Um, They're put in these dishes, packaged and sent to the surgeon. The surgeon then applies this to the patient's wound. The keratinocytes migrate, cover the wound, and when the patient's ready, another um, MySkin patch will be put on until the wound is completely closed over. Um, This is by far the least gory picture I could find. Um, And this shows a diabetic foot ulcer. Um, This patient's had this wound for two years. Um, nothing will work, nothing will treat it. Um, then six, uh, sorry, eight applications of my skin were applied to it and you get complete closure and healing of the wound. The trouble is, even though skin is fairly simple, um, tissue engineered and regenerative medicine, uh, tissue engineered skin and regenerative medicine strategies can't recreate um, skin in the lab. Skin has hair follicles, sweat glands, and everyone's skin is a different colour, and we can't recreate that as yet. So even with really simple tissues, we're still a long way off creating them um, effectively in the lab. Next, bone repair. It can be carried out in the clinic. Um, For major um, gaps in bone, such as those caused by birth defects, major accidents, bone cancer, and, say, joint replacement and ageing, we can, to a certain extent, replace this with more or less a space filler. Uh, This is a porous scaffold of hydroxyapatite, which is the main mineral constituent of bone. And these scaffolds can be made to fill the void um, in a patient's patient's bone, in this case, the uh, the funny bone in the arm. These cells can be then, uh, these scaffolds can be seeded with the patient's own cells. These little red dots here are bone marrow stem cells from the patient, which have been seeded onto a scaffold. That's then implanted, and these cells will differentiate into bone tissue. And as I said, that's basically just a filler. It doesn't create proper functional bone, because bone doesn't really look like this. It looks like this. You have a bit of... uh, You have marrow in the middle, then you have a bit of spongy bone that looks like the porous scaffolds, and then you've got these circular osteon structures that have blood vessels and nerves flowing through them and between them, and as yet, we can't recreate that, but we're, we're getting there. These hollow fibre membranes replicate this structure, and these are produced um, by my colleagues in chemical engineering. So we're, we're trying to address these. These are 3D architectures of tissue. So 
How many amongst you have broken a bone? Okay, a fair proportion. You'll know that bone healing is fairly, fairly slow. Um, and in particular, in bad bone breaks, it can be a lot, lot slower. The body will regenerate, but maybe occasionally it needs help. Now, you may not have seen this in the media, but this happened a couple of weeks ago to um, the Arsenal player, Eduardo. Um, a mistimed tackle, let's say, went from that to that, and you can see that he's got a double compound fracture where both of his bones and his lower leg are broken. Now, particularly for very expensive athletes, it would be great if we could speed the healing process up, and for you and me too. So it may be possible in the future to do something like this. We can get responsive gels that are liquid at room temperature, and when you inject them into the body, they'll fill a void and they'll set at body temperature into a, into a solid gel. Um, you can load these gel solutions with cells, growth factors, and maybe hydroxyapatite particles for the mineral content. This will fill the gap and speed up the healing process. So that's just another way that stem cells could be used in a fairly minor roles. Right, complex tissues now. Uh, bone and skin are fairly straightforward, although we still can't even achieve those yet. So when it comes to the heart, the heart is structurally quite complex. It's made up of lots of different cell types, um, from the cardiac muscle to the endothelial cells and smooth muscle cells that make up the blood vessels. Um, You've got nerves in there as well. And as well as the complex structure and arrangement, you've got this uh, vasculature, all the blood vessels, extremely complicated, and there's no way at the moment we can grow a heart in the lab. So what we can do is repair individual pieces of the heart as they uh, break down over time. Firstly, valves. Um, just This shows the aortic valve. When the heart contracts and pumps blood, the aortic valve opens and lets blood out. Um, when it relaxes again, the back pressure basically closes, uh, causes these three tissue flaps to close, preventing blood flowing back into the heart. If you've got diseased or damaged valves and you need them replaced... Currently, the two options that you really have are these uh, synthetic valves that are made of carbon fibre. And um, so I've been informed they click every time they operate. Um, Or you've got this, which is basically a pig valve. They take it out of a pig, they remove all the cells, and they suture it back in place to replace your damaged or defective one. But just about a year ago, this news story appeared. Um, The very famous Magda Yacoub in London, um, him and his team have taken bone marrow uh, stem cells and grown them on a scaffold to produce heart valves and within a few years this should be in the clinic. So what will happen is a CT scan will be taken of your existing valve um, and from that three-dimensional image you'll have an accurate scaffold made and on that your cells will be grown to make a heart valve that fits you perfectly. Secondly, um, blood vessels. When your heart... um, As with a lot of people, um, hearts will become diseased over time and you will get um, blocked blood vessels. When this happens, areas of your heart muscle die. So bypasses, uh, basically healthy veins or arteries taken from the patient um, and it bypasses the blockage um, in the blood vessels that supply the heart muscle. We can take, um, conceivably, in in the future, take stem cells, convert them into the epithelial cells 
so the endothelial cells that line blood vessels and seed them on the inside of a biodegradable polymer scaffold, take smooth muscle cells and seed those on the outside and grow them in culture to form a blood vessel, which we can then um, bypass the blockage with. There are many problems associated with even with this very simple structure in that um, these need to withstand the pressures that blood is under and current um, blood vessels that we can make in the lab aren't exactly that strong and may rupture. So, again, work needs to be done. Finally, it's, uh, the, uh, the very sexy bit is creating, actually beating cardiac muscle. Um, when you have a heart attack, you get um, damaged areas of the, of the um, heart muscle. And to replace or um, to back these up um, and to improve the function, we can uh, potentially grow stem cells on polymer supports, expand, differentiate these into contractile heart muscle. This can be placed as a patch um, and it will just support the, uh, the failing heart and help it regenerate. So this little movie I've got here, um, this pink <coughs> fluid is basically um, cardiac cells in a collagen solution um, and this is being fed around this tube to make a ring. Um, this will set into a gel so you'll have, um, you'll eventually when it sets you'll get a sort of little jelly ring with heart cells in it and because you need to, um, because heart cells are contractile they're stimulated in cell culture by uh, these little metal rods that pull them apart. And it's, this makes all the cells line up and contract in the same direction. So this just shows the spontaneous contraction of these heart cells in culture. These are the cells themselves contracting and beating. And this is what it looks like when you put it on its own in a dish. <laughs> so we can make contractile tissue that could be used to replace damaged heart muscle. So the current state of the art, complex tissues... Uh, exactly that. They're very complex. Um, the 3D environment and all the signaling mechanisms that go on in a 3D tissue um, are very hard to reproduce. At the moment, if you want to replace liver function, that is a state of the art. That is a bioreactor containing pig hepatic stem cells. The patient's blood is fed through this and is detoxified and fed back into the patient. It doesn't exactly fit nice and snugly under your ribs, but we're slowly, slowly getting there. Now I'll hand back to Melanie just to, uh, to summarise. Okay, so... So I just kind of want to, to sum up what, what the key points that we want you to, uh, to take away from, from this evening's uh, um, presentation is that um, hopefully we've convinced you that regenerative medicine is an exciting new area of research... Um, in which stem cells have great potential and, and we hope will have a, a play a major role in the future. Um, Paul has talked about a wide range of intelligent biomaterials that are being used to try and reconstruct the three-dimensional aspects of tissues, which is going to be Im important, in fact vital, for actually trying to recreate functionality of those tissues for um, eventual transplantation and therapies. Um, clearly there are lots of challenges ahead in this field and we're going to require a great many advances in many different areas of molecular medicine, um, some of which Paul has sort of outlined to us um, 
in his presentation. What are we doing in Bath? And this is, uh, this is, this is the, the, the last slide. Um, so in Bath, we have a Centre for Regenerative Medicine, which if you're interested in finding out a bit more of our activities, um, we have a website, which is easily found from the university website. And this is a, an interdisciplinary collaboration um, between the departments of biology and biochemistry, um, my department and Paul's department, pharmacy and pharmacology, along with the Department of Chemical Engineering. And what we're doing is combining the expertise of both um, genetics and developmental biologists in, in biology and biochemistry with um, pharmacology and with some of the um, bioengineering and tissue engineering aspects which Paul talked about to really try and um, take new and innovative approaches to address some of the problems that we've highlighted that need to be solved in order that regenerative medicine therapies become much more routine um, in the future and to, to benefit all, I would say. Um, so please log on if you want to find out more. And I should just add that myself and my colleague Andrew Ward are co-directors of the Centre for Regenerative Medicine here. And um, we'd be very happy to, uh, to interact with anyone who may have questions um, in the future. So I thank you for your attention and I'll hand back to Paul for his set of questions. Thank you.